Hello, this is Matt Hale bringing you the Art Monthly Talk Show on Resonance, a groundbreaking 24-7 radio station broadcasting on 104.4 FM to central London, DAB to Greater London, nationally on Radio Player and live stream to the rest of the world. The Art Monthly Talk Show is based on texts published in Art Monthly magazine, usually from the current issue. The issue we're doing today um, is 449 September 2021. In other words, we're talking about a text from that magazine, and it's by um, Matthew Bowman, who is a lecturer. And Matthew, just to double check, um, I've got you down as a lecturer at the University of Suffolk, and am I right, Bath Spa University? Yes, that's correct. And yes, I'm a... another one as well in Essex. Um, I also work for the Gallery Art Exchange at the University of Essex. I knew there was some Essex thing as well. Great. Hello, Matthew, by the way. <laughs> and um, by the way, listeners, um, please do subscribe to Art Monthly. Um, that is, you would receive uh, a print issue for as little as £39. And you get 10 issues per year. It's also available digitally. And I think it's about £8 for three months, so that's three issues, and you can keep renewing them. And that's a good way, because you get an archive of all of the Art Monthly's magazines going back to 1976, which I quite often put in a word and search for something, like Gustav Metzger, which I did this morning, and you'd be amazed how much there is in there to, to look at. Um, but Matthew, today uh, we're gonna talk about your feature, which Art Monthly's called Representing Destruction. And it says, um, you consider the role of archives in recording and representing the destruction in and of art. Um, how would you like to start? Because you, you you begin by sort of talking about what what we even mean by destruction of art. I mean, mm. it doesn't sound a very positive thing, but isn't it? No. Um... My own reflections really began, I guess, by a whole different set of things coming together in the last few months. Um, every now and then, kind of destruction kind of in art or in some kind of relation to art kind of rears its head again. And in the last few months, um, there's been the creation of a website called Archive of Destruction by the curator Jess Ferning. Um, at Glasgow International, there was... Um, Sam Durant's kind of iconoclasm pieces, which are kind of sort of dotted around different parts of Glasgow. And then there's also, of course, the Edward Colston statue, which has kind of uh, been relocated to the M Shed in Bristol. You mean, and you mean about, the, statue, the statue that was 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 pushed over? That's right. Kind of, the one that's kind of, sort of toppled, went into the into the water yeah. and got fished out again. Yeah, and uh, sort of destroyed as a, as a public sculpture sorry just a different mm. application you carry on that's, that's right and, and so it's kind of i think an, an interesting question kind of how do we judge these different forms of destruction um especially as when it's not only a case of, sort of destruction of art or destruction of monuments but also kind of artworks themselves are deeply interested in destruction and may even sort of take forms of destruction kind of for themselves. And, and so the article is really sort of trying to kind of think through these kind of various kind of possibilities and positions. Yes, 
and 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 you you talk about um, at the beginning. Well, you sort of talk about different types, and there's the dismantling sometimes of an artwork. In other words, somebody like Richard Serra had a work um, in America called Tilted Arc, and it was commissioned, and then actually in the end taken down and cut up into three pieces. So there's and there's also the, the, the self-auto-destructive art, which you talk about. But I don't want to tell you tell us what the different types are. That, that would be great. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so something kind of Richard says kind of work, Tilted Arc. So it's intended to be a permanent kind of fixture. Um, and of course, it's kind of often kind of used as an example for defining site specificity. Um, so Sarah's commission to kind of put in Federal Plaza and it was installed in 1981. And then with the kind of the growth of kind of US culture wars, um, the emergence of kind of Ronald Reagan, for example, and kind of a resurgent kind of kind of right. Um, Sarah's work became very much um, a focal point for attacking the arts. And uh, it became a whole kind of legal case, which kind of rumbled on for a number of years. And eventually, um, kind of local government kind of, kind of removed, dismantled the sculpture um, in 1989 over the course of kind of one night. Um, so there you got a kind of case of, a, I suppose it's destruction or dismantling from above. It was, the work was meant to be kind of semi-permanent or as kind of as permanent as we could imagine any artwork in a public location. Um, but it was kind of uh, removed from above. There was very little kind of public demand, it seems, to actually have the work removed. Well, I contrast that with some of kind of, kind of Metzger's kind of auto-destructive kind of interests, um, where destruction is very much keyed into the work from the get-go. It's a theme of the work, it's kind of the material process of the work, it kind of exhibits the materiality of the work itself. Uh, but also ties in kind of very strongly with a kind of a post-war atmosphere of sort of coming to terms with the legacies of the Holocaust, bombing, world wars, Nazism, totalitarianism, um, the whole depressing, destructive shebang. Um, but also kind of using that, I suppose, in a in some ways, it seems almost like a cathartic kind of endeavor. Other times, I don't think it has that. It's about that cathartic. I think it is more demonstrative than that. It's, it's quite a political act, I think, for for Metzger probably wasn't it? Um, you know, <laughs> coming out of his his involvement with um, the anti nuclear um, protests, and and he was highly involved in that. And 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 we've had some. Pieces in Art Monthly about, about these, um, which are which are well worth reading. And and um, there's a book by Andrew Wilson as well, who who, who worked at Art Monthly, um, which was he edited it, um, damaged nature, auto destructive art. But I think it was published quite a long time ago. But there's a lot of books about Metzger, but but the, the removal of the artwork of of of, of um, uh, by Sarah was also a political act. Mm. Which is interesting, they're just totally different polit politics, obviously, but also a totally different uh, approach uh, to, to art. And one by not by artists and one by artists. 
Mm. And they both can sort of share this kind of, sort of fundamental iconoclasm. And I think that kind of relates to a kind of a point I kind of make later in the piece in which uh, destruction or, or iconoclasm can be appropriated by either wing of the kind of political spectrum. What's that, what is iconoclasm? Tell, tell, just spell that one out. Ah, uh, pardon, can you repeat that, sorry? Tell us what iconoclasm is. Ah, uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, so perhaps a helpful way of defining iconoclasm um, would be the way that um, the Swiss art historian Dario Gamboni does. He, he wrote a marvellous book called The Destruction of Art. And he makes this distinction between iconoclasm and vandalism. Um, the simplest way to kind of put the, the distinction would be iconoclasm is often motivated um, by political or philosophical concerns or social concerns, um, while vandalism is often kind of just willful destructive behaviour, uh, having no more rationale than some kind of self-gratification. Um, so kind of a big example of iconoclasm would be something like the, the Reformation, for instance, where kind of during the, kind of the 1500s, particularly in Germany, but of course kind of soon after in England, um, artworks, paintings, and um, various forms of sort of church decoration were seen as profoundly deceptive, as profoundly a-religious in some respect or another, and therefore needed to be attacked, removed from the churches, melted down, whitewashed over, or even lampooned, for example, by kind of a thrown eggs at a cross and sort of saying, this is just kind of wood. This is not Jesus. This is kind of a bit of wood in the form of Jesus. Um, so it's a sort of Protestant approach. That's right. So it's kind of a message to iconoclasm, which right. is kind of not there in vandalism. Okay. And, and, and then you, you mentioned romanticism. Um, as being after ref after the Reformation, mm. and, 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 the and the next form of of this destruction is that right? Um, that's right. It's quite it's quite a complex kind of kind of moment. Um, so in many respects, the kind of form of romanticism I have in mind is what scholars refer to as a early German Romanticism. Um, it's kind of what kind of Jean-Luc Nancyot and Philippe Lecoux-Lebarth, the French philosophers, have written about, or what a German art, um, the German critic, kind of Walter Benjamin, um, was deeply influenced by. Um, so Romanticism in Germany um, kind of emerges in a sort of a complex relationship to the Enlightenment, and also in a complex relationship to its uh, post-reformation inheritance um, and also in a complex relationship to the French Revolution and um, romanticism or early German romanticism and this is kind of where it crosses over say German idealism um, has a very strong interest in time and the passing of time and how that uh, how our experience is situated in this kind of wider temporality and so they become really interested in kind of semi-natural forms or pseudo-natural forms in which decay is present. Um, 
So it's around about this time, the idea of the ruin, for, for example, becomes this kind of a metaphor or allegory of times passing, of the kind of futility of kind of human action, of our the impossibility with which we think we are masters of the world. And of course, um, you can get an English version of this um, to do with the picturesque as well. It was kind of often kind of slightly ruined, uh, sort of nature kind of reclaiming and destroying human endeavors in the landscape. Um, so in many ways, uh, kind of arguably, um, but maybe one on less. Kind of romanticism is kind of the first kind of real kind of movement just to begin thinking about destruction in a kind of much more philosophically deep way. So paint, painting ruins, literally, I mean, I've seen those, but, but obviously mm. much wider than that as well. But, 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 but at, in a, is it a positive, would you say? I mean, or are they, are they, um, you know, in their art, are they sort of wishing for something impossible or are they acknowledging they can't live forever or what kind of, um, I mean, this acknowledgement of destruction, the eye mm. in the world, the, is, it, is it called entropy? Or no, um, you know, like Smithson, Robert Smithson later, this thing of, of, of knowing that things will break down. Is, is that kind of a positive thing? I, I think, I think probably it's quite ambivalent for them, but it's kind of interesting to kind of think of kind of Robert Smithson as a later day uh, romantic figure. Um, actually, kind of many of his interests kind of do seem to coincide with um, early German romantic figures like Friedrich Schlegel or his brother Alga Schlegel, for instance, or Novalis. Um, which is kind of often where something kind of Walter Benjamin seems to kind of put, play so nicely with Smithson's kind of practices and ideas. Um, what did those, I think coming I mean, back to... Sorry, what are those romantics you just mentioned? What did they say? Can you um, say mm. that them? Yeah, um, so the, for Sch the Schlegel brothers, uh, Friedrich Schlegel and um, Alger Schlegel. Um, Friedrich Schlegel is in many ways kind of best remembered or kind of best known for a number of writings he produced in the 1790s, which took the form of aphoristic fragmented texts. He referred to them as kind of philosophical fragments. Um, in many ways, he's kind of a precursor to kind of Friedrich Nietzsche and Nietzsche's own use of the aphorism. And, and Schlegel was in many ways deeply skeptical of Kind of systems of philosophy. Um, Immanuel Kant is kind of the big example here, or um, kind of Fichte as well, who kind of constructed these kind of large, wide-scale systems of philosophy, um, almost described as kind of architectonic forms. Kind of, it's kind of like keystones, kind of here, there, and there. It's kind of foundations. Get your foundations right, and you could build this. Um, and so Schlegel's allergic to that. Um, he didn't really think that kind of gave a true account of our experience as such or um, the way our kind of experience kind of responds to the world, to its own sense, to our own kind of mortality, our own finitude. So we can't know 
the minds of others as such that everything is going to be kind of partial in one way or another. And so he kind of felt that writing needs to be kind of fragmented in order to kind of encapsulate that experience far better. And, and the ruin again becomes kind of a metaphor for, for that fragmentation. Um, so I suppose one might actually sort of say kind of Schlegel was kind of a producing ruins of the kind of kind of Lacantian architecture or Lacantian kind of architectonic um, or claiming it's actually already a ruin kind of one way or another despite what kind of Kant's claims would be for that. Yes, because it was like, it sounds like the structure of his writing reflected his beliefs. Um, mm. That fragmented structure, whereas say I've seen paintings of of ruins that are in like oil paintings where within it there's a landscape with a ruin in it which seems that, that kind of you know with a frame around it it's like kind of like a contradiction really because it's talking about the idea that things will always break down but it's framing it in something as you know as kind of solid and as 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 one mm. thing as possible which doesn't seem to be the right structure for, for, for no it, i think it kind of uh kind of monumentalizes it in, in kind of many ways. Yes. So, and uh, yeah, and I suppose like kind of say kind of Joseph kind of Malarim to kind of turn as kind of watercolors of Tintern Abbey are kind of perhaps uh, more interesting or more kind of pertinent here than say the full scale kind of oil conversions of that kind of scene. Yeah. And then and then when 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 you come past this r romanticism um, what do you what, what do you reach next in terms of the destruction in art as a, as a, as a, as an idea? Where do you come to? Would you say it's quite a big leap, isn't there? Because romantic. What period is romanticism? Is it, it's um kind of really about kind of the key kind of romanticism, sort of seven seventeen nineties, uh, sort of Caspar David Friedrich as a, a slightly kind of later romantic figure before it all goes horribly kind of bombastic in the kind of mid 19th century. Yes. Um, but yeah, I just kind of sort of thinking um, that perhaps kind of, sort of destruction does kind of erode as a kind of theme for a good part of the 19th century and for a good part of the 20th century. But it kind of uh, reappears in little pockets. Um, so perhaps because like uh, Charles Baudelaire it's kind of, sort of tilting in that direction without quite fully getting there. And again, it'd be something kind of Walter Benjamin who kind of uh, unpack that kind of Baudelarian kind of ruin or destruction or kind of fossilization um, in the 1920s and 1930s. And of course, kind of um, something like kind of collage and montage with his own kind of uh, strategies of fragmentation. Um, was it can appear in the early 20th century and though destruction was not always a theme as such, very, I think it is in say John Hartfield's kind of work. Um, it's certainly kind of there as a resonance. And then when, when does it, when does it rise again more clearly, you think? Mm, I, I think probably kind of World War Two is a, a big marker here. Um, so kind of imagining the kind of say the destruction of kind of large parts of Germany, Coventry, mm. kind of London. Um, suddenly, can you kind of and suppose you kind of got kind of all these kind of, kind of um, 
young artists at the time in the 1940s kind of come into maturity amongst rubble. Right. And um, so you took, so by the time you get to say the late 50s, early 1960s, it starts to become quite widespread again. Like as a practice. As a theme within work. Mm. Or an attitude. I mean, Metzger, as far as I understand it, escaped Germany on his own and came, came, came here. And then, so he was highly affected by the Holocaust and the war and everything. And then he, he certainly um, absorbed that deeply and came out in his work, didn't it? But I'm sure it did, did, did with others as well. Yeah, I think kind of pointing to people like um, Alberto Bury, for example, or Yanis Canelis, kind of kind of up of um, they all kind of absorbed in one way or another. Yeah, and Tang Tangley, um, um, mm. I mean, is that that that's that's a, that's around at that time, isn't it? When he made these machines, that there was one particularly that, that auto destructed. It was designed to wear itself out and, and explode, I think, and collapse. Mm, he's going to um, homage to New York. Um, and, and, and kind of sort of there is kind of as a performative element kind of in the destruction, which becomes kind of really quite interesting as well. That kind of, it's a, a performance, it's a kind of time-based kind of artwork. And, and when it kind of necessitates a particular kind of audience around it um, and of course that interest in kind of material and temporality becomes very strong in the 1960s yes Lot, lots of performers i mean metzger performed didn't he his, mm. his acid paintings which were done um outdoors in a public space and um, he practiced them i believe beforehand and then he would throw acid onto nylon which would melt and, and continue making itself by automatically destructing as the acid but what it come what comes to mind then if we bring up this idea of the, the perhaps the if you talk about destruction of art the, the public sphere or the public comes in comes into your your feature um doesn't it and 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 mm. That's 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 a kind of very interesting addition to this idea of an archive of destruction, um, because it does seem, for some reason, that they're connected. I don't quite. Would love to for you to expand on what is this? What is the importance of the public sphere or the public or whatever to the idea of of, of destruction of art? Because it, it's in different. Like with Metzger, you have an audience, and you mentioned an audience for. Tangley being important that it was seen to happen but there's other mm. other part other things that happen when the audience is important as well and the public you, you say, say a bit, sorry I'm telling you what to say yeah. but I'm, I'm interested in yeah. that, that area yeah. as well yeah. Uh, yeah I think it's something that comes through quite nicely in Sam Durant's work um so many of these iconoclasm pieces are um, so they kind of depict sort of different monuments kind of around the world, kind of having been toppled. Um, so they kind of sort of drawings based on um, archival photographic kind of works. 
And, and what's kind of interesting in, in kind of many of, of these drawings is the presence of an audience. Um, so it's often so it seems like there's kind of people around kind of a destroyed monument or a destroyed kind of work kind of in the drawings. And Drent's also done a, a piece um, kind of toppled, which kind of gives it, it's a sort of two channel video, which kind of uses archival footage um, showing the monuments being destroyed or taken down in one way or another. And I think um, kind of what that suggests is a couple of kind of things. Uh, one, the process of documentation itself, photographing, videoing the destruction, it's a process of witnessing in one way or another. You need somebody there to be kind of witness. Um, but it often also sort of ties in with these kind of monuments often have a public function that often have an idea about what the public sphere should be, how that should be defined. And when we begin to find that these monuments don't represent our sense of what the public should be, the Edward Colston monument example, um, then it comes down to the public, I think, to be the ones to remove the monument, to say, this does not stand for us. This does not represent us. And I think, uh, so the public can sort of takes down the monument. They say how they wish to be represented. And so they kind of reimagine the public sphere in an act of destruction, in an act of dismantling. They kind of give voice to themselves. The positive thing for mm. people doing the action. And, and historically, this, this is not necessarily something that's just beginning. Like we are aware of it happening now in, in Bristol. You mentioned that the, the, the Coulson sculpture in the which is now lying horizontally in the M shed with the spray paint they was put on by its, its destroyers, as it were, preserved on it. So the act of destruction of mm. sculpture has been preserved, which yeah, I, it's, I find it's quite, quite, it's, it's quite a weird <laughs> twist, isn't it, really? Because it's been yeah. a museum, as it were. So destruction has been saved. Uh, I, it does, it's just a concept I can't really get my head around yet. But this, the idea of, of monuments being destroyed by the public, whoever they are, which is another conversation, really, um, didn't, I mean, did that start in, say, the French Revolution? I mean, when do you know when? Or I mean, obviously, we talked about the, the smashing of gargoyles, say, in churches in the Reformation, but that's not quite the same because that was state done, wasn't it? I think. Um, but both, both state and public, um, in the case of Reformation, it kind of a uh, particular kind of preachers uh, like Thomas Munzer kind of created this kind of mass movement in which can the public sort of take it from uh, principality to principality across kind of the German states. And I, can, and I guess you could also kind of go back further to um, say a, a Byzantine quarrel of images, um, whereby, because kind of, kind of the Bible kind of preaches against the use of images, um, against kind of producing graven images, you could not have an image of Jesus or the Virgin Mary or anything like that. And uh, once that became a, a recognised theological standpoint for a while, um, the priests and the public would kind of work together and kind of remove these kind of things. Um, and I kind of guess that kind of goes back a really kind of long way. Um, 
the earliest example I could think of is uh, an Egyptian pharaoh. Um, oh, what is it? I'm going to mispronounce the name for which I apologize. Um, Akamenton, who's a uh, um, Nefertiti was his wife, who sort of tried to re-engineer completely Egyptian religion um, and its symbols and, and a way it kind of represented the gods and everything, which kind of worked for, I, I guess, about 20 odd years. And then he, he kind of died. And then following the kind of Egyptian first, just kind of tried to abolish all records to Akhenaten from the rec- um, from the kind of the archives, so to speak, so destroyed and then went back to the older ways and the older gods. Um, so it's a very long kind of history, kind of to that, of kind of public and uh, both public and state forces, kind of reinventing the public sphere through acts of destruction. We, we've had a couple of um, features in, in Art Monthly, which I'll just mention. They're, they're, they're by Dave Beach and Mark Wilshire, and they were in 2009, and they were about the public sphere and the public, sort of analysing, I think, kind of what what that was exactly or and what public art might be. So people might be interested in looking at, th- at those issues mm. back then as well. Um, and, and I was... I, th- I think um, Mark Wilshire gave an example of of how um, the public sphere and the pub, like where where this where things being destroyed, so the destruction of art, might not necessarily be uh, purely physical, as in three dimensional. So so it could be um, like someone as crazy as, as, as or not, I shouldn't you say that as an artist called Mark McGowan used to come up with these amazing kind of press releases you'd receive sometimes at Art Monthly or ideas would be put out into the into the ether using the internet I think probably um, of things that he'd done like leaving a tap on for a year was one um, at a gallery and whether he mm. did or not it was taken up by the press as a as a disgraceful act in other words they wanted to destroy his work because it was something they didn't approve of. But then equally, the thing that he did didn't actually necessarily happen, but it was a form of destruction, you could say, by the Daily Mail. But the the art existed, really, only in its put down, in its, um, Mm. which which is just an idea that came up to me, uh, I think, when I was was reading your piece about, because this thing of art, to be destroyed, art doesn't necessarily have to be a physical thing. I mean, it could be an idea that's, that's that, you know, and conceptual art did, was very involved with it. In some, can you say any more yeah, about, about conceptual art sort of, sort of relationship to destruction? In uh, the late 1960s, um, there's an essay written by Lucy Lippard and John Chandler um, titled The Demotalization of the Art Object. And she argues that conceptual art was kind of very much interested in dematerialization in order to contest the art market, um, which often sort of depends on kind of kind of physical objects, kind of physical artifacts. Um, painting was sort of seen very particularly as a, a kind of template for the, the art market sellable good. And so conceptual artists were kind of dematerialize the object as well contesting the art market but also kind of linking 
their practices to different aspects of the civil rights movement um, and kind of protest against the Vietnam War. So it's kind of a politics of dematerialization, um, which also sort of ties in very closely with different forms of destruction. And it just kind of kind of pops into my head right now. But um, kind of Lucy Lippard was very close to the German artist kind of Eva Hess, and um, her kind of kind of latex and fiberglass kind of works were known to be very fragile from the around about this time and themselves kind of engaging in, in their own gradual process of self-destruction uh, apparently um, kind of preservation of kind of Eva Hess's work is a very difficult um, procedure as well as a very difficult kind of ethical question in that kind of destruction of self-destruction is kind of built into them um, so I think kind of a uh, in different ways in the 1960s, from kind of kind of Metzger to kind of art and Puffer to conceptual art, particularly in North America and other places, demutualization and destruction go hand in hand, kind of one way or another. So with, with Smithson, Robert Smithson, for instance, he's one of those artists, isn't he? I mean, he, 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 he um, covered a building in soil, didn't he? And, 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 and at a university, um, outside and, and it was it was meant was it meant to just gradually deteriorate it was about that mm, self-destruction that, right. yeah so for smithson um one of these kind of major themes is the concept of entropy um so entropy is basically the idea of time only kind of moves in one direction um and greater disorder comes into a stable system leading to the collapse of that system. Um, he, he, in one of his essays, he gives this wonderful example of a, you get a box of sand, um, half a box is kind of black sand, and the other half of the box is kind of white sand. And you take a child and you get them to run clockwise, and all the sand gets mixed up and it becomes a kind of a gray kind of, kind of melange. But then if you get the child to run anti-clockwise, the process is not reversed. <laughs> it, it just becomes, again, it's kind of grey lunch. It's kind of the idea, you can't get a toothpaste back into the tube. Um, and this is kind of a way of thinking about time and kind of using destruction or Smith's and kind of think about this in terms of displacement as a way of kind of activating time in relation to artworks. And um, the partially buried woodshed from uh, 1970. It's of course that kind of one that you just kind of mentioned, in which a large kind of part of soil uh, was kind of poured over the roof of the woodshed, pushing kind of the rafters to breaking point, but also kind of knowing because of the, sort of the downward kind of push of that soil over time, those rafters will go. The work will be destroyed at a certain point. It interestingly got um, graffitied with with protest um, writing, didn't it? And somehow, somehow that did that. Mm -hmm. How did that affect its um, the way the way people perceive it? Do you think it changed that because it got Viet uh, I, was it Vietnam protesting? It, it was um, Kent State shootings. Oh, um, that, yeah. Yeah. So, um, so students were protesting against American involvement in Vietnam. 
and um, National Guardsmen were sent out to handle the protests and it opened fire, killing a number of students. And um, in the aftermath of that, um, partially buried woodshed seems to take on a particular resonance. So it's hard to know really if the students really paid any attention to this kind of artwork or Smithson's kind of thing on campus beforehand. But then the Viscansop destroyed um, suicidal artwork, so to speak, this kind of artwork heading towards its own death. Took on, a, I guess, a particular emotional and kind of intellectual kind of import after those shootings and became almost kind of a little work and sort of site a pilgrimage, a kind of a, an alternative monument, I, I imagine, yes. to the students that had been killed. Um, we probably didn't talk about Durant quite enough because didn't Sam Durant also do um, a sort of reconstruction of some gallows or something that was which was then that were they removed from somewhere? Have I got That's that? Right. Yeah, this was like, what, a couple of years back or so, off the top of my head. Yeah. Um, but yeah, kind of presenting those kind of gallows as kind of a, a kind of a counter monument or anti monument as a way of kind of engaging in the particular particularities of American history. Um, kind of the, the widespread destruction of kind of uh, kind of people with the different tribes that are kind of there beforehand as well as towards um, kind of slavery and the civil war in the United States. But, but they were they were objected to and they were they were removed or something. I mean where's the destruction element of this of this bit? I'm, I know I brought it up but it is in your you mention I think but was it taken away because people objected to that it being you know having that reason for being built is that right i, I think my understanding is uh yeah that kind of a probably kind of sort of federal government um became deeply disturbed by it and thought this is a kind of they're probably kind of sort of think of it as kind of anti-patriotic in yeah. kind of one way or another it's kind of going over the, the hot holes of American history. And so they felt it's kind of their work had to be destroyed, removed, dismantled in one way or another, lest they be seen as uh, admitting kind of America's culpability in terms of darker history. Yes. And Wilding as well, who, who, this is completely different, but say sometimes artists it is is destroyed by its bad design or something. I mean, this, didn't she have something floating in the um, the river uh, in um, the River Weir in Sunderland, and 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 it, it was supposed to float and have lights and things, but it, in the end, it just didn't. It cost a lot of money and was supposed to really uplift the city, and and in the end, it just didn't work. Yeah, and and uh, I think. Uh... Can some people were kind of sort of vandalize it by kind of sort of throwing objects kind of at it, yeah. and it became a bit of a, and often when someone becomes a, kind of a mecca for vandalism, um, it's almost like there's no going back. And if I recall the story, um, you can you can find this in on sort of Jess Fernandes' kind of website, um, archive of destruction. But if I can recall the story, kind of the council decided it, it had to be removed. And they kind of put it into storage. And after that, it was kind of a 
semi-lost. Um, I, I think that Alison kind of, kind, of and kind of lost track of kind of what happened to it after a while. Yeah. It became very hard to kind of reclaim the work. Well, there, there was another project, wasn't there, where, where a sculpture disappeared and, 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 and an artist researched why it, why it disappeared and, and then found it in, in, in the vaults of a museum and it had been removed because it was had... It, was it... Um, well, they didn't like its sexual the sexuality of it, or or something. Yeah, yeah, that's right. This this is kind of work, um, kind of a kind of by a mayor Balkan, um, kind of who kind of examines kind of the disappearance and the history of his sculpture, and uh, and it's probably quite again, it's quite quite like an example, and in some ways it's a little bit like the Edward Colston example, in which destruction doesn't always result in a sort of total. Uh, demolition of the object. Sometimes it is about that kind of removing or hiding the object from, from the public sphere. I suppose you could say from the public sphere. Um, yeah. And I suppose what becomes kind of quite interesting or quite kind of humorous here is that the object is preserved. It's kind of rescued, preserved, kind of kept safe, well, but very, out of sight. It's odd, but that's why the, where the public sphere bit becomes. Is very important. Talking, talking. Let's, let's, we haven't got a lot of time left, so but it'd be nice to say a little bit more about the the archive of destruction, Jess Fernie's project. You you say um, um, witnessing has a major role to play in the acts of destruction, and then and, and an archive of destruction is a sort of witnessing and preservation, mm. it, which which again are uh, sort of not well preservation of. Of, of destruction is, is a contradiction in itself, really. Um, so that's quite interesting. What, what, why, why do you think this, this archive is happening now? Is it, it, any particular reason? Or what's your views of, of an archive of destruction existing? I, I think perhaps uh, one of the key things here is kind of the witnessing that kind of happens is we're kind of witnessing something that's already gone, that's already has been lost. Um, so we're kind of being called forth, I imagine, to witness an absence. And, and I can sort of describe it as kind of us describing the kind of like the white chalk line kind of around the body and the body having been removed. And I think that's perhaps quite important kind of ethically um, because if we do not kind of, kind of witness the absence, if we kind of, sort of testify to the absence, then we kind of lose knowledge of that, of that horizon, about that kind of possibility or that kind of ideas. Um, so very often kind of archives kind of preserve things that are still kind of extant, you know, they still exist, um, kind of what other kind of artifacts. And I think we could imagine a kind of, an alternative history in which can archives preserve the things that have been lost and that probably be a much larger archive than anyone can imagine. Um, in many ways, the world and various archives are the sum total of what survives. And because these things survive, they remembered. Um, so I think kind of, kind of Jess Fernie's archive very much kind of ties in relation to those not just kind of focusing upon what survives, but also trying to preserve or testify to what has not survived, what has been destroyed. And I think it's also important, I think for her and her website, that the archive 
it's really a kind of a record of human destruction in one way or another. Um, the different ways we exhibit agency, the different ways in which we kind of partake in political actions, uh, the different ways we have had political actions kind of um, foisting upon us. And we've become kind of the victims of other people's ways of making the world. Um, so I think it's kind of both positive and negative destructions in Jess Fernie's archive, kind of funny ones and tragic ones. Yeah, the, the menu page is is is, is great because it has um, themes and they are decay, boredom, entropy, fear, greed, love, conviction and rage. And you can click on the button and then search for things that Jess has decided fit with those <laughs> and obviously some things fit in with with all of them and some don't but, but but just as an archive it is it is clearly has an artist at the helm in a way I feel I know she's she's a curate called a curator but it feels and 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 it says that um that there are two challenges it says on the page about it the concept of destruction as an inherently negative act and the idea of an artwork as a static thing something that retains its original form and is in the main finished. Instead, the focus on, is on the cathartic, transformative and expansive potential of, of acts of destruction. And again, goes on to say more, but it, it, it's really well worth looking at. Um, and I hope the audience will, will go to the archive of destruction. You just have to put that in Google and you'll, you'll find it easy. And it's, it's growing, isn't it? And it, it's, not, mm. it's not complete. And I don't suppose it ever will be. I mean, it will just, because you can enter, you can apply, you know, send things in and say, consider this, please. Yeah, yeah, most definitely. It's an ongoing project and... Uh, With essays as well. Yeah. It has writing, which is a kind of... Because it, she's, she does acknowledge the need for analysis, I suppose, like you like you are, or, or, of, of this kind of area of, of, of art and, and destruction. Mm. And I think it's very important... Um, because I think, I mean, in many ways, the writing again kind of testifies to the absence, it kind of draws attention to the absence, um, which kind of uh, perhaps kind of oddly or not so oddly, is kind of part of kind of Robert Smithson's own interest in kind of writing and kind of what he's kind of writing was all about kind of making absent the artwork or kind of registering the artwork's absence. Yeah, I mean, his writing is amazing, actually, isn't it? And it, and it, it, it does... It's, it's art, really. It's as with, and I interestingly have always found Metzger's writing equal to his 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 um ob mm. objects or actions. You know, fascinating to read and 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 parallel. You know, to to his work to his work, or I call it his work. I think it is his work, really. His writing. I often tell my students that uh, that kind of really, it's okay to be a great writer. As well as a great artist, definitely. <laughs> you know, I'm a contextual studies person, and so I'm trying to get them to read and write a lot. Which Good, it's okay. <laughs> yes. Listen, it's been great talking to you, Matthew. I'm, I'm, that, mm. I do hope um, listeners will read your 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 feature. As I said, it's in the September 2021 issue four four nine of Art Monthly magazine, which you can subscribe to on the Art Monthly website. But we've touched on your on your feature 
and 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 the order in which you know my questions force you to go is is, is not as logical as the piece. So, so it's well worth reading. And 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 as I say, do also look at the archive of destruction and other things that that leads you to. Um, listeners, thank you for listening. And Matthew, thank you so much for for coming on the program. Um, uh, thank you for having me. You've been listening to the Art Monthly Talk Show, which is based on Art Monthly Magazine, which is published 10 times a year. And you can subscribe to Art Monthly Magazine in print or in digital form, or both of these if you wish. Just go to the buy page on the website and select the appropriate subscription. The digital subscription gives you access to the entire archive of Art Monthly going back to 1976. And we are now making issue 450, so you can see how many there are to search through. In the programme you just listened to, it was mentioned that there were two other features that might be of interest to you, connected to the feature by Matthew Bowman representing destruction. These were The Fall of Public Art by Dave Beach, which is in issue 329 in September 2009, and Beyond Public Space by Mark Wilshire in issue 331, November 2009. And you can see these by taking out a digital subscription with Art Monthly. Thank you again for listening. And we hope you will return and listen to other programmes which are available on the Art Monthly website on the events page.